Welcome to Designing Futures, exploring AI, data, architecture, and beyond. In this podcast, we dive deep into the insights, groundbreaking ideas, and innovative approaches shared by our guests. Together, we explore the immense potential of AI for architecture and design, unraveling its remarkable possibilities and acknowledging the challenges it presents. So Helen, we are thrilled to have you as our first guest uh, in this podcast that we are launching very soon. You are Helen Armstrong, a professor of graphic and experience design and the director of the MGXD program at North Carolina State University. You are also the author of the book Big Design, Big Data, which delves into essential questions about design, data, and AI in today's rapidly advancing AI landscape. The book offers AI intriguing use cases and interviews with influential figures in the field. You teach also at the interest section of design and other related disciplines where these questions hold central importance in the educational process. So we are excited to have you on our podcast as both an educator and a researcher at the crossroads between AI and creative industries, which are both topics that we will be covering. So to start with the basics, maybe you could elaborate on what you speak about AI and what you focus on. So in the book, I'm really thinking about how designers can use the capabilities of AI to change the not only how they're making, but what they're making. So really thinking about leveraging AI and all of the complexities of incorporating that into our design practice. And maybe for our listeners, just to clarify, what do we mean by AI today? So when I say AI, I mean machine learning. That's the most prevalent form of artificial intelligence of today. And we can think of machine learning in essence as a set of algorithms that analyze data and then make predictions. Well, to expand upon that a little bit, those predictions might be something like, might be predicting, uh, might be personalizing a social media speed. It might be predicting the ETA um, of a Uber or a Lyft might be making a prediction around behavior like fraud detection with a credit card, predicting the value of the home in the future. So it could be about predicting values. It could also be predicting the identity of a face, um, thinking about image recognition and specifically facial recognition, or predicting how a sentence might be completed, right? So lots of different ways of thinking about the power of prediction, which in essence is what machine learning is. That's a great way to explain it. I think we will come back to that uh, later in the talk when we also think about what this prediction means in terms of design output and how this becomes a, a creative element. We thought as well, I mean, one one of the, the reasons that the, as well we thought it would be great to have you as one of the of the first guests is that because of the book that you wrote that I think is uh, as we explained a bit in the introduction one really I think it's a major contribution in the in the design and data we don't often see in that space a lot of people combining I think um, the thinking as thorough and as much in details as, as you made it in your book 
could you maybe tell us a little bit first about maybe, of course, it will be as well the opportunity if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself with your own words. But could you tell us a little bit as well about the genesis of the book? What brought you the desire to, to do it? When did you start and how, how did you really build all that journey, having all those finding all those amazing use cases and all the all the people that you've managed to interview? So first, I'll say I'm honored to be one of your first guests. And I Thank think you. that well, I think that we'll all be working more in the space of design and data in coming years, which is really exciting. I, I came into this space in 2015. I was working on a project with a company called SAS Analytics. It was a sponsored studio project in which we were, the students in my studio were conducting research with this company. And we were working on a project in which we were thinking about how to visualize data for low vision users. And that led us down a road to really thinking about how an interface might detect, um, detect user needs and then adjust accordingly. Because there, there are many different types of visual impairments, all with different needs uh, for, uh, for reading um, data in a, so, so very different kinds of needs, many, many different types of conditions. So anyway, that led us down that road, which then led us to machine learning as part of that project. How do you build an intelligent interface that can detect and predict what someone might need and then adjust, anticipate those needs and adjust accordingly? And that space got me really excited because I that was my first experience with this idea that we could be designing for very specific individual needs through machine learning, which really changed the way I thought about design. So that project got me moving along that journey and it sort of snowballed from there. I started doing a lot more industry projects around AI across a lot of different domains, health, retail spaces, government. And each of those projects, I was able to interact with domain experts and data scientists, which I grew more and more intrigued with the technology and the capabilities of it. And then I started reaching out to people, it started conducting interviews more for my own knowledge at um, initially, but then all of it eventually sort of coalesced into the book. And when, when did you start that journey? Because the book was published just before in 2021, correct? Just before COVID. Could you tell us a bit when did it start? I mean, and how long it took? Well, I would say I started the material sort of started naturally building way back in 2015. But the project itself was a two-year project. And in some ways, ironically, COVID helped me because it gave me a little <laughs> bit more time Uh, dedicated time to work on the book in which I wasn't being interrupted by normal life activities since we were all stuck at home, you know, I could find in a small space and all my classes were being taught online. So in some ways that, that timing uh, was beneficial to the project. To add to this, at the time, did the creative industry react with suspicion towards these new tools being developed or with excitement? Or how would you describe these first steps? Because of course, today we're overloaded with this information and everyone is trying to uh, make uh, an opinion uh, for himself out of this. But how did this 
start in the, these first uh, years of it starting to become um, uh, a common knowledge out, out there for creative di- industry to, to deal with? That's a great question. In my experience, people were, designers were, back then, and I say back then, I'm not talking about that long ago, but were, when they started working with the technology, they were very excited about it and the potential of it. In since, uh, I'd say the last, since last fall, in very recent months, we've had this kind of AI hysteria that's begun with chat GPT. And so now I feel like the atmosphere is much more fearful. There's a lot of fear and, and in some ways, rightly so. I can, I can speak to that more later, but I think that we are, there is a moment of kind of hyped up fear that is actually detrimental to us as designers because in some ways it paralyzes us in ways that's not helpful. I agree. I think we will we'll come to this later again, but I feel that it kind of oscillates between fear and then a sort of excitement when you actually realize you can master the tool and it helps you to do things you wouldn't be able to do before and realizing that it's it's not doing what everyone's saying that it's it's doing so also um there's a real oscillation between these feelings and then adapting to to this uh to the new tools and the new world but we'll come to this i think again a little bit later i think if if we continue as well on what you you and maybe it's connected as well to what you've been developing here, but one of the main um, one of the main topics or main ideas that you talk a lot about in your book is how the, the human-machine relationship has changed or is changing through AI. And I think it would be quite, I mean, you're talking about a transactional to relational relationship that have moved on. And it would be really very interesting, I think, for us to, to hear um, more how you... Yeah, how you see this uh, relationship building up and how it used to be as well before. I mean, what is what is the shift and where does it uh, where does it is heading to? I think that's a very important question for us as designers and something that we will be thinking about really deeply in coming years because we're really crafting those experiences in which that relationship is changing. So, and this is something that Uh, a designer at Carnegie Mellon, uh, Paul Pangara, talks about this idea of transactional to relational. That we've, it, it, you can think about trans, a transactional relationship with machines as you're asking for something, right? So a, a transaction is occurring. But if we think about relational, we can also think about it as conversational. This idea that you are interacting with a machine and then you're ending up in a place that you perhaps, there's possibilities for ending up in places that you didn't expect as you would with a conversation with another human, right? You can end end up somewhere new, arrive at new conclusions and um, discover new opportunities and ideas through that experience. I think that's one way to think about it. Another way to think about this relational shift is to think about our own social emotional needs as human beings. And if we truly want to collaborate with machines, if we really want human machine teaming to occur, which I would say is a very necessary component of our future, 
If we want that to happen, we need to ha create machines that have social emotional awareness so that we can relate to one another. Otherwise, we will know the, the machines won't know how to relate to us and we won't know how to relate to them. So if we truly want to team, we also need to build these kinds of deeper social emotional relationships. So I would I would say in both of those ways, these experiences that we're crafting are shifting away from that transactional model and in, in very and opening up a lot of potential because of that. I think that that brings up a, a lot of interesting questions because what, what is the danger of the machine um, of taking over and and if we're talking about this the, the condition of a designer who has a client um, does the client know if he's interacting with the machine or the the, the designer does it matter even <laughs> at some point uh, but of course the the question that comes together uh, with that is is what what is then the role of the designer or is he even needed? where this uh, stop starts, what the limitations are? So I would say that designers play a really critical role in designing that kind of relationship. So each time we design an experience or an interface or an artifact in which intelligence is involved in some way, and by that I mean AI, we are really crafting those relationships. So I, I would see the designer as, as really critical to addressing questions that come up when you begin to form these deeper relationships with machines. Questions like, should we see the machine as this kind of substitute human? And I would say no. I would say we should think about other roles that machines can play that would be more useful than trying to replace humans because... You know, we, we have a lot of great humans already that we enjoy interacting with that bring amazing things to experiences. So why should we try to replicate them? Instead, think about ways that machines could come into new spaces and form new roles so that we can collaborate with them to go somewhere, to go back to that idea of going somewhere new and different instead of just automating away people. What I liked very much in the way that you define as well the designers is being personally myself quite a lot of working with developers and, and right now are taking a complete course on Python and, and seeing how you are behind all those numbers, creating all those code. It's true that what I liked very much in, in your definition is that the designer is a bit the bridge between those two worlds, between the ability to understand how to, to bridge the computer and the user at the end, and that there's no one else really who seemed to be very much uh, as well uh, as designers entitled to do that because of, of, of the way that they, uh, you know, the function of, of their own. And I think that this is very interesting, that's how you, you took that moment in history where computers become more and more important and redefining the designer within that space. And I loved what you said about the fact that the designers are, are the roles, the guardians, <laughs> the guardians of the humans, <laughs> a bit. So, so yeah, if you, a beautiful way, in, a, a poetic, but as well a very, a very pragmatic way of, of re, redefining that. To, to add to this, I would, uh, I would just ask if, if you think that this relationship, or this, um, the establishment of these roles, do you think these should? be regulated or can they even be regulated or will this naturally happen because 
this is what society will demand and, and how the industry will tend to develop, even though we might see not, not see this happen yet. I think this this particular if if we're thinking about these how these relationships form I I think this is a difficult thing to regulate directly. I think that we will naturally form lots of different roles with machines. I I, I think where regulation comes in is when we're thinking about issues around bias and privacy which contribute to those relationships, right? How is, how does, how, what data is exchanged or protected? How does the user have agency over when they're being surveilled or not surveilled? What kind of biases play into these sorts of relationships that we're forming and how do we, so, so we, we know that humans, humans are not, um, this is not a neutral this is not neutral technology, right? Humans are creating the technology. We're bringing data to the experiences. That data is biased. The humans are biased. And so these AI systems not only exhibit our innate biases, our cultural biases, but they can also amplify them. So there are lots of problems with these systems that we have to think about very carefully. And I think that's the the piece of it in which regulation is really important. And that's, but that's not an easy question to answer, right? How does that regulation play out? At which le- what level? But, and, and I think that it's very encouraging that the discussion around the problems with the AI systems is really rising to the surface right now. So not, so I, you know, we talked earlier about the kind of fear that's coming to the surface as well, which is in some ways, important for us to move through that phase and acknowledge the power of what we're dealing with and how serious it is and the, think about future implications of what we're developing. But there's also a need to respond and come up with really productive ways to deal with regulation and to think about making these systems better and more supportive of humanity. So I think there's a lot of encouraging stuff happening in that space right now. There's one thing in particular that you're talking about, uh, which is de-skilling. Could you maybe explain to us a little bit what it is? Each time we create a product, and, and the products that I create are digital products, and so our teams are thinking about the kinds of features that are in those products, right? What kinds of, what, what, what are we enabling people to do through those products? And as we make those kinds of decisions, we're thinking about things like what, well, we need to be thinking deeply about things like what kind of skills are we building through the digital products that we make and what kind of skills are we automating away? And these are, are, are pretty heady questions. So we can think about, uh, example would be, say, a Uh, GPS system that most of those systems are designed to get us from point A to point B. Um, But maybe sometimes I actually want the system to teach me how to navigate from point A to point B, not just to take away that ability. Uh, Patty Mice is a designer at MIT. Her group, Fluid Interface Group, thinks about these issues a lot, and they think about issues around how can we build digital products in which, or interfaces in which we sometimes maybe choose to 
build up human skills, skills like memory or emotional regulation, rather than just automating them away. So looking, so really thinking about that and looking for opportunities to perhaps shore up or even push human abilities to new places through AI and not immediately automate away everything. And, and I'm going to add to that, I think that's really interested in the creative space right now because we're seeing a lot with, of, of uses of generative AI to, in essence, replicate human creativity. And that's one of the reasons that there's a lot of fear in industry right now, and rightly so. But we don't have to use those tools simply to replicate human creativity, we could instead think more about what is the AI bringing to creativity that's different from human creativity, and then how can we use it to complement our own skills to end up somewhere new, to produce things that we could not produce without the AI, but we're still really leveraging that you know, beautiful human creative spirit. That's great, I think, because it, it really brings us to our next uh, set of questions and topics that we wanted to discuss and this whole notion of critical thinking uh, within the creative process. So I think w w one thing that we all, all um, acknowledge now is that designers are exploring AI mostly in a way that it can enhance their creative process. So how they're leveraging the AI as a tool for creativity, prompting new avenues of explorations in the field. We've all seen, of course, the the, the, the rise of uh, these in terms of both uh, text-based programs and text-based output, but also very much as image-based outputs. And this is growing uh, within weeks now to a, a very close uh, relationship between the, an actual 3D volumetric model that can be designed and, and, and immediately create, is linked to a, an image uh, output and, and the two function together to really have this uh, uh, more and more of a clear relationship between an actual three-dimensional form, let's say, and, and the image that it produces. So we're really, all, all the tools are moving ahead quite quickly to these uh, dimensions. We, we uh, wanted to ask you how you think this will affect the design process and, and the outcomes. Do you, for example, see that there's too much of the same coming out of these tools? Um, do you see that it's enhancing creativity or flattening it, that everyone is getting a similar output? I do. I think we're in a moment in which, yes, there is a lot of similar output. But I think this is a, a brief moment that we are passing through. In that regard, I, I'm going to go back for a minute to what you're talking about when we talk about prompting and image generation. We are moving toward a more intuitive way to create, and that's very interesting. We've been restricted for quite a while now with kind of keyboards and mice and Even touchscreens, it's a very screen-based artificial way to create that we've been conditioned to use, but that impose a lot of limitations on our process and are not necessarily great for us physically or emotionally, or we could, we could go down that road. But, but anyway, we've, we've, um, we've grown accustomed to that. But when we start to create using language, when we start to create using gesture, and when We can move more fluidly between text, image, dimension, 
then the whole process becomes a much more natural process for us. And that that is a space that is is very exciting, right? To, to create more fluidly and intuitively rather than being stuck behind these machines all day. So I think that generative models, the text to image, image to image, that these models are moving us in that direction. So I think that is something for us to celebrate and enjoy. I agree that the tools in the moment are producing a lot of sameness because of the way that we're prompting the systems and because of the the way that the systems have been trained. But I also think that they're evolving very quickly. And so there's a lot of potential to move beyond that rapidly. But I also would go back to that idea of how can we build upon the kind of alien perspective of AI to produce really different things, different kinds of systems, rather than just doing what we've been doing for a long time, but automating part of the process away. I think we're kind of stuck in this moment of transition, but if we can push through, (laughs) we can get somewhere very exciting. Is it in a way coming back to this relational collaboration that you talk between human and machines that we need as well to understand that they're different from us and understand how they function to bring two different types of brains together and make something more exciting out of it than trying to replicate ourselves on them. Yes, I I agree very much with that. I think that's a, it's a very interesting way of, of, uh, of looking at, at this. And I would ask then if it's, do you, do you, where do you see there the space for original thinking? I think that there will always be a place for critical thinking and original thinking. And I and carving out those places in which we continue to engage with those human skills, but pairing them with AI is uh, is really powerful. Kate, uh, let's see, Kate Darling wrote a wonderful book um, and it's called, I believe it's called The New Breed looking to see if I had it, but it, um, it, I believe it's called The New Breed. And in, in this book, she looks at different kinds of relationships that humans have had over the ages with other types of entities. She's looking a lot, um, thinking a lot about animals, for example, but also other kinds of organisms. So I, I think that those spaces are wonderful for us to be pursuing, to think about these different kinds of relationships that we can have and ultimately create through as designers. And do you see this as a paradigm shift in in the relationship of humans to creativity or just another step in, in the development of, of creative thinking with new tools that emerge as there's always, always been in history? Hmm, that's a hard one. I would like for it to be a paradigm shift. I hope it will be a paradigm shift, but it's it's hard to know yet. I, I suppose many people hope it's not a paradigm yeah. shift no, because they're saying. afraid that this will completely <laughs> take over everything they know. But it's interesting. I mean, just in a few words, could you maybe say why you would hope this is a paradigm shift? Is it because of what you were mentioning before, the, the fact that we create in a, in a freer way again or... Or, or maybe uh, other reasons? 
I don't hope it's a paradigm shift in the sense that creatives will no longer be needed. I hope it's a paradigm shift in which we can celebrate all the things, all the qualities of creatives and amplify those qualities and complement those qualities with technology. In some ways, I feel like we're doing ourselves a disservice as designers to say that we could, that 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 we could simply be automated away, right? There, we bring so much to our society and our culture, and if we can stretch to embrace the technology and move forward with it, I feel like those effects will be. We will. Um, will sort of resonate throughout our culture, right? In a, in a wonderful way. So when I say paradigm shift, I'm not saying paradigm shift as, as in here are today's designers, today's creatives, and a machine will just come in and do everything they're doing now and will be useless. I'm saying paradigm shift as in we can say, okay, this is what we do well. Let's think about what the machine does well, and then let's let's move somewhere new together. That's great. I think it's a great introduction also to the third topic that we wanted to discuss, and that's the one of um, ed education. I think uh, as as educators, uh, all of us here, I, there's a a real question in terms of how we educate the next generation, how we teach our students to work with these tools. First of all, do we teach them to work with these tools or do we um, do we ignore them and, and knowing that they're using them? Or is there is it, what are the methods of actually starting to work with these in a curriculum? So I, I might start maybe with a question to ask what in, in your extensive experience in the education system. How did you observe the entry of the AI into the space? So I'm going to speak specifically to design education because that's where my knowledge is. I, I would say we should we should all be embracing these tools in the design classroom. And I'm going to go back a little bit to what I was talking about before in the sense that I don't think that optimistic future that I painted is going to happen automatically. I think it's going to take a lot of work for us to get there. And the design classroom is the perfect place for that work to begin because it's a space where we can begin to experiment and we can begin to envision a desired future for designers with these tools. And so I feel like it's a necessity of all design classrooms right now to seize these tools, to interrogate them, to celebrate them, interrogate them, tear them apart, put them back together, understand the capabilities of the tools, and then carve out that space, that that future space in which we're doing more, we're doing better, you know, more interesting things rather than a world that doesn't need us anymore, right? I, I, I feel like we are very much needed and the classroom is the perfect place to, to really dig into that. And do you see... Um Do you see resistance uh, for the moment in, in the ed educational forums to change the curriculum or adapt to the curriculum to accommodate AI? It's interesting because I, I read about resistance 
But when I actually talk to educators, I don't hear resistance. When I talk to at least the educators that I've talked to, I, I hear more excitement and interest. And you know, educators like to try things out. They like to explore. They're curious people. They're, uh, they're people who are constantly reading and engaging and thinking. That's why they're educators. So I, I find a lot more excitement and interest in the education space rather than resistance to the tools that are coming out. I've, I've been on a lot of forums in which educators come and talk about these issues, and um, they've been really great discussions. Do you, do you think maybe that resistance sometimes is just coming from teachers who have less knowledge? Because it's not easy to understand. It's a very, very complex technology to really grasp and understand. So to be able to have an experimental environment requires as well to have a certain knowledge and expertise that it might not be always very to have as well as a designer. Yes, that's, that's a good point. And there is also a feeling of being behind in culture generally that It's, it's almost like this mass anxiety that we all have to deal with where we all feel like we're behind all the time because we can never keep up and we're constantly barraged with change. So that is something that not just in the AI space, but that I think not just educators, but industry as well, we're all feeling that and dealing with that. And, and certainly that could contribute to resistance to these tools. But I, I don't know. I, I really haven't. I've, 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 I've heard people talking about that, which I think we all talk about a lot. But I think that the tools are also becoming, it, it, so I would say in the last, you know, even in the last year, AI tools have become much easier to access as well. Less, less technically complex, more democratic. So it's also easier to get into the space than I was previously. So one of the aspects that we're thinking of when talking about AI tools in the creative process is that they generate a lot of results. So one of the main thing that the designer is thinking about at this stage is what the variables and the prompts are to generate these results. And then you end up with a, a lot of choices to select from. How do you teach critical thinking uh, when the emphasis is on selecting rather than making? I think that's an interesting question. I would, we can look at that from different perspectives. One is that editors are fantastic critical thinkers, right? And their, their job is not, it's selecting, but it's also selecting refining, commenting, etc. So I can certainly see critical thinking coming through in that sort of selection process. But I would challenge that we aren't making anymore. I would say that we're just making differently. And I think that the, and this goes back to that idea of sort of more intuitive language-based processes of making perhaps, and other methods that we haven't even fully explored, multimodal methods of creating. So I don't think we're going to stop creating. I think that we're just going to be making differently. It's an interesting way to, to, to look at it and optimistic for the future. 
of course, we, we were in the, there was something associated to creativity that had to deal with the pain of doing something. So you had to go through a, a lot of a, a painful creative experience and the, 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 the difficulty of coming up with something. And this has shifted to a situation where we're actually presented with a lot, not all of the same quality, but we're presented with a lot and we suddenly have to start making sense of it. So I think there's going to be a very interesting uh, set of questions that are going to come up for educators in the next years about how you teach to uh, critically look at something when you maybe haven't um, gone through the pain of creating it, which which was maybe the traditional way of, of, of thinking uh, of a creative process. Yeah, I- I think it depends on what you mean by pain, too, though, Sounds right? Very negative. Like, it's not. It can be very. No, no. I'm. I hear what you're saying in that sense of it, but I, I, effort. Yes, but the, it's still. This still requires effort to create things, even with the tools right now. To if even just prompting through a system, right? It's a. It's not. To get something that's really interesting and appropriate to what you're trying to design for takes a lot of effort still. It's just different kind of effort, different. And and um, so, unfortunately, I mean, fortunately or fortunately, I don't think pain will go away. I think I, I, it will just be different pain. I agree. And I think that's what I was referring to at the beginning of our talk, that it's not as simple uh as, as people tend to describe it, to get a result that is satisfying. <laughs> so again, in this field, like in many others, you will have experts that are better at getting the desired result or working with the machine to get something and others that are playing with it and not necessarily getting what they want out of it. Yes, and and... I mean, the the results that I've seen that have truly been interesting and useful and we could say desirable have often been coming from creatives, right? People who are already have that creative literacy and that critical thinking and those. So I I think often my question goes to the fact was whether when you say that they have this creative literacy, admitting that they've learned it through what we would say were traditional education and and working methods. Will the next generations that might not go through the same process still develop this critical thinking? So I I would say yes. First, that would be my my knee my knee jerk reaction would be yes. We will still develop that critical thinking. I'm I, I'm thinking of it now, and I'm thinking in my space typography. Right, you you can. There was a time when we kind of felt like you needed to experiment with a letterpress. You needed to physically set type in order to understand how typography. And then we. And, and that's still a useful thing to do, right? It does help you understand type in a different way. But then type became digital and we sort of transitioned typography into a digital space and no longer needed to experience those physical artifacts in order to understand relationships between type. And that, and 
that was sort of in the print world. And then once we sort of shifted, sorry, I'm, but designing digitally for print. And then once we kind of shifted into a space where so we're not necessarily even designing for print, we're designing digital for digital spaces, The a lot of the properties of typography have changed quite a bit. And we're, we're so far from the original restraints of physically typesetting that we, we're beginning to think of type in very different ways, but we're still thinking critically throughout. So I, I, I just think it's evolving and changing. I don't think that we're going to lose those critical skills, but we're just going to need different skills and they're going to evolve and push us into different spaces. I think those are very good examples. Of, and if I associate this to the architectural world and our architectural education, we have, of course, seen in, over the last years with the introduction of the computer and uh, three-dimensional uh, uh, computer programs and parametric programs, the similar discussion as in, does the first-year student have to learn how to draw with a pencil and on, on old-fashioned paper? Or do they immediately jump into uh, digital tools? And of course, as, as a teacher, I've seen the transition, which was very interesting to observe, because it does also come with a different way of conceiving and understanding space, not lesser or better, but different. And I guess that's something that we have to acknowledge and probably think as well uh, on what these new tools are going to generate as spaces, as experiences, as designs, as understanding. Uh, it, of course, the, the the speed at which they're developing means that it's very hard to to anticipate it and to take the time to to think. Yeah, I I agree, and and I think. To your point about the pencil, does there's also the, you know, working with a pencil, drawing is a very natural act for us. And so it may be that AI can complement that natural act so that we're, this goes back to the de-skilling thing, right? Maybe drawing will become more important because it's, it's something we do naturally and then we're designing with that skill in new ways. So I, it's it's hard to it's hard to envision at this point, but I agree, and it's yeah. it's a very positive way of looking at this. <laughs> One last question, and I want as well to make sure because we spoke about that before, and I'm not sure if you gave the example of the meal, and I think it's so relevant in terms of when you define. So before I'm asking the last question, if you could define a little bit that situation where you define the role of the designer. Um, Uh, and explain to us uh, this beautiful uh, meal situation that you that you provide to, to clarify that. That would be great. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. So as designers, we're trained to create desirable futures to, or to design the right thing to design, the right thing, um, the right design or the right future, preferable, desirable things. We're very good at giving form to possibilities. Data scientists are trained to find the right data to get accurate results. They're very different perspectives. So the way I think about this is, let's say a data scientist and a designer is throwing a dinner party. So the data scientist would plan the menu by first thinking about what ingredients are available, what ingredients are 
convenient, what are in season, what are economical. They would begin with the ingredients and they would build the meal based on the ingredients. The designer, on the other hand, would begin by thinking about who's coming to my dinner party? What do they, do they have any allergies? Do they have any food restrictions? What have they enjoyed eating at my house in the past? What kind of experience am I trying to create through this meal? How hungry will they be? So they're crafting their meal based on the people, the, the quote, users are humans who will be attending. So I would put to you that we need both of these perspectives very much as we move forward in this technology. And both of these perspectives need to be working together. Because if they're not, we're going to end up with a lot of, quote, meals that nobody wants to eat and maybe even are really harmful for us as a people and as a society. That's, that's a lovely image. Yeah. A perfect, perfect image. As a last, last question, just with the pace of, um, of everything that's going on, I mean, you had the privilege in a way probably to write your book before ChatGPT, GPT-3 in general, at COVID time when you had a lot of time to delve into specifics and details. How are you, how are you coping now with the pace of things and how do you keep yourself up to date um, in that field. This goes back to that anxiety I talked about before where we all feel behind all the time. It's very yeah, hard. Yeah. It's hard to ever be up to date and things are changing very rapidly, which can be disconcerting. It's like we're on a fast train and the terrain is constantly changing and we're trying to get our bearings and we're never quite sure where we are. So um, I, I do what I think a lot of educators do, right? I read a lot. I talk to as many people as I can. I listen to podcasts like this. And I try to not be paralyzed by that anxiety, but instead to kind of get on that train, go forward, be critical and thoughtful and cautious, not to just embrace everything as wonderful, because we do know there are a lot of very deep problems with this technology, but to still try to enjoy the ride. That's, that's great. That's a lovely way to, to end the, this discussion. It was really lovely to have you on the show to share your experience and your, your views. I think we learned a lot. Absolutely. Um, and many things that we will take on to the next sessions and, and discuss with our, our guests in the future as well. So thank you so much for uh, starting this journey with us. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed being here and I loved talking to you about these ideas. We are at a very interesting moment and the more we talk about them and explore them together, the more we maybe can frame that preferable future for all of us. Thank you. And we really highly recommend your book as well. And I'll end up as a, on a personal note on that. What is great about your book is like, I've read it a couple of months ago. And it's still so, so relevant because I think that you're addressing really major philosophical topics in it as well. So it's it's kind of really, in a way, is is like maintaining its its importance as a major reference to, to major questions that are really important to tackle today. So really extremely highly recommended book to, to read, Big Data, Big Design. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. Thank you. We greatly appreciate you tuning into our podcast. If you have any suggestions for future guests or topics you'd like us to explore, we would love to hear from you. You can find our contact information in the show notes or on our website. Thank you again for being part of our podcast community. 
Stay tuned for more engaging discussions, captivating stories, and valuable insights. Thank you.